Hello, readers. Dan Cortez is a former MTV personality, actor, and now a published author. Of course, those credits include MTV Sports, playing the Mimbo on Seinfeld, Veronica's Closet, and more. Dan, thank you so much for the time today. What inspired you to write this book? It was kind of weird. I had probably about 10 years ago, I wanted to write a book, had this idea I wanted to write a book. And then work kind of got in the way, life kind of got in the way. But I had been introduced to this guy by the name of Matt Holt, was a senior vice president for Wiley Publishing back then. And I'd never met him in person, the guy I wrote about at the beginning of the book. And then just last year, when my new baby was born, he follows me on Instagram and social media. And he contacted me, reached out via email. How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. I saw you had a new baby. Have you thought about writing a book? He said, you know, I'd love to get your perspective on fame and fatherhood. So that sort of started the process. And we had many conference calls back and forth with him and the people that work with him to sort of figure it out. But my whole thing was, I said, look, if I'm writing a book, I want it to be what I want it to be. And I said, the longest chapter is going to be five to six pages max because I don't have a long attention span. And if I'm reading a book, I want it to be something I want to read that I could sit down, read it in five minutes and be done with the chapter. And everything I kept throwing out at them, they agreed to, which (laughs) is good, but then also kind of scary because they were like, sure, yeah, go ahead. Sure, that (laughs) sounds great. Let's do it. Sure, that sounds great. But I was still sort of on the fence. And that's why I wrote about it in the foreword of the book. He kept saying, I want it to be positive. I want it to be Dan. I want it to be more Dan, positive. And So that's when I told him, we've never met in person. We've only talked over the phone a few times and via email. I said, what do you think? Like, if you were to meet me in person, what do you think I'd be like? And that's when he said, you know, we kind of took a consensus around the office. And we thought you'd be a lot like the character you played on that episode of Seinfeld. And I didn't listen to anything else he said. He probably spoke for another two minutes (laughs) because all I heard was you're a mimbo. And it's, one of those things where it was great and man, what an experience to be on Seinfeld and that whole thing. But that's why I wrote in the book too, that what aired that night changed my life forever. And that's when I just said, I'll write the book because I think there's a lot more to me than that. And it's the first book I've written. And it's one of those things where you make your outline. Here's what I want it to be. Here's the three parts, my foundation, my fame and fatherhood. And, you know, it sort of took on a life of its own and, I was really pleased with the arc to the book and getting me from point A to point B, but also hoping that a lot of people can relate to it in the sense of looking at your own life and taking the time and the opportunity to look at what you've done. And like I said as well in it, how I perceive myself, how I think other people perceive me and how other people actually do perceive me are three entirely different things. So let's at least get on the same page with myself and know that I am who I am was sort of the idea behind it all. Regarding the parenthood part, we're obviously shaped by the sorts of people that our parents are. What were your parents like when you were growing up? I had great parents, very loving, but you know, a household with discipline. My father was an Italian immigrant, came over when he was a young boy and my mother, they were college sweethearts, got married, but I was the youngest of four. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, about 20 minutes west of downtown Pittsburgh, and I wasn't planned. And I found that out. My dad hadn't been back to Italy since he came over with his parents when he was six. So 2001, 2002, it took him back. I hit my parents for a trip. Hey, let's do the whole big touristy thing. Let's go all over Italy. My dad doesn't drink really at all. 
And, you know, you're in Italy, and if you sit down for lunch, they ask you, do you want house red or house white? <laughs> what kind of wine are you drinking with your lunch? So after a couple glasses of wine one day at lunch, I'd ask them, I said, you know, everybody in the family, all the guys are named Jim, Joe, Tony, Vince. It's all these Italian names. I said, where did Dan come from? And he just started laughing. He goes, I got to be honest. I didn't know if you were mine or not. And it was <laughs> sort of this where I'm like, wait, what? I mean, obviously, if I didn't look like I was spit right out of his mouth, I look identical to him. But it's like, wait a second. So I have an oldest brother that's 10 years older than me, sister seven years and then a brother five years older than me. So they thought they were done having kids. So I was very fortunate in the fact that my older siblings really took to me. And my sister, I was like a baby doll for my sister. It was like better than a puppy. She had a new baby to show all her friends. So I came from a very loving home, but also a very humble home. We had six people in one house with one bathroom and well water. And God forbid, we used to set the timer. If my sister were going to the shower, you used to have to set the timer on the oven. Okay, it's five minutes. You got to get out of the shower. Get out of the shower. Because it wasn't necessarily that you're using all the water, but you're using the hot water. And she would always shower first. I'd be the last one to go. So I always had cold showers growing up. It was just like there was no hot water left. But again, I look back at my life now, and if you can analyze it as an adult, and go, wow, geez, you didn't have this, you didn't have that. It's one thing to look at it as an adult, but growing up, I felt like I never needed anything. And that's a sign of good parenting. Even in the hard times when you can convince your kids and make them feel, I shouldn't say convince, make them feel loved and secure and that they have everything they can possibly need. So I had a great childhood. I really enjoyed it. Dan, one of your earliest rock and jock highlights involved you as a 12-year-old in Little League, and it had to do with the town's OBGYN. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> there was a guy, he was a doctor, he was the OBGYN in our town. There was three. He was like the main guy, though. And he was also one of uh, our Little League coaches. And he used to drink Sprite out of a can, but it wasn't Sprite. He would fill it with gin, just straight gin. He wouldn't even mix it with the Sprite. And he'd sit there and he'd coach third base. And he had no batting signals. He would just yell to the kid, bunt. So we had an all-star tournament game that I had played in. And Doc was coaching third base. And we had kids on base. And I came up to bat. And I remember thinking, like, this is it. I'm going to hit a home run. This is like as you're walking to the, you know, it's like slow motion as a 12-year-old kid. That's all these people are here. The town is here watching. This is going to be amazing. And he's yelling from third base, Danny, bunt, bunt the ball. And, you know, <laughs> parents are laughing. And again, it's like this was the 70s, late 70s, where people are smoking and drinking while they're watching the Little League game. And so people would laugh because, ah, it's just Doc. That's what he does. So he called timeout, run down. He's telling me, bunt the ball. You need to bunt the ball. And then he started speaking. He's like, bunt the pelota. I don't know what it means. I don't know if it's Chinese. <laughs> he goes through this whole thing. He goes, but just bunt it because he said he had the P. He's like, just bunt the ball. So as I'm walking back, he's doing like this cheer. I say, B, you say, unt, B, unt. People are laughing. And I don't know why. I, in my mind, even get it back in the batter's box. I'm like, I'm going to swing as hard as I can possibly swing. And the kid threw the pitch, and I bunted the ball. Because even when he was saying bunt, you see the infield backing up because they're like, okay, it can't be serious. There's something going on. And I bunted the ball, and then that led to, like, a kid getting the ball, throwing it home, ricochets off the backstop, goes back out to second base, all this crazy stuff with people cheering and kids running around not knowing where they're going, and we ended up winning the game. And the irony of all ironies was, yeah, I ended up getting the MVP. I had a good game prior to that, but then 
I like to say, I think it was for the Bucks. Who knows? But I really felt that story sort of defined the area and the people that I grew up around. And when that game was over, I remember looking for Doc, and he was gone. And somebody had said he was getting beefed back in the day. He was getting paged, a <laughs> two-way pager, because he had to go deliver babies. Now, as an adult, I remember thinking, like, who was the lucky lady that got her child delivered by Doc coming in after drinking a can of gin to then go and <laughs> deliver the baby? But, hey, it was Pittsburgh in the 70s, dude. He's wearing those old-school polyester coaches' <laughs> old shorts. polyester pulled up almost to his nipples on his chest. He was, yeah. You know it. Now, it was around the same time that you experienced an epiphany that pointed you towards a career in entertainment. What happened? You know, it was really weird, and I still tell the people today, we were leaving my sister's house in Ohio, and I was in the car with my mother. We were driving back home and had this moment of just almost as if somebody had spoken to me, telling me that I don't want to say you're going to be famous, but I was going to do what I ended up doing for a living, which is work in the entertainment industry. And it was like this warm feeling coming over my body, but just more of a sensation of, okay, this is going to happen, putting me at ease. And I remember my mother, because I would never shut up as a little kid, asking me why I was quiet in the car. And I told her, and I explained to her what had happened. And being the loving mother that I had, she was like, that's sweet, honey. Okay, you're going to do whatever you want to do. But ever since then, it was almost as if I would think about that often. It was almost as if I had that security blanket of, I know somebody's watching out for me, or a few people are watching out for me, and that this is going to happen. So it's hard to put into words and to explain, but yeah, I never forgot that. I really enjoyed you describing several different epiphanies that you went through in your life. And one of those was the summer before your senior year at the University of North Carolina, where you were working the graveyard shift at a steel mill in small town Pennsylvania. And I forget if it was yeah. your hometown or not, but what was the conversation with some coworkers that you had that really served as another one of those moments of clarity when you felt like you were at a personal crossroads. It was a little town called Wampum, Pennsylvania, which was close to the Ohio border. And I worked a graveyard shift there for the summer. And when I first started working there, I didn't have, nobody would talk to me. I wasn't union and I was 20. So these were all older guys that were hardened guys who were basically steel mill lifers. And a lot of the guys that worked at graveyard shift, that's a good majority of them, chose to work the graveyard shift, which was midnight to 8 a.m., sometimes midnight to noon. But they'd worked it because they'd get time and a half. A little while through that summer, I was befriended by a few guys that then would invite me to have lunch with them. Again, lunch at 4 o'clock in the morning, but, you know, and eat with them. And it was not that any steel mills are really nice, but it was not a well-put-together, nice place. It wouldn't pass any code tests of like, okay, this is great for safety. But there was one night we were in there, we're eating, and it was pouring outside. And there was a metal roof over the area where we would eat. I even wrote in the book, I said it was very Shawshank Redemption vibe to it. <laughs> it was like we're quiet and eating, and then people would just share a story. Out of nowhere, they wouldn't be prompted. And this one guy had shared a story about his kids wanted a pool. And he talked about working at the mill and the graveyard shift specifically to make enough money to get them the pool. And it took him quite a bit of time to do it, but he did it. And he said, you know, my kids don't know me. They know me. 
as the guy that got him the pool, not dad, because he'd worked the graveyard for so long that when he'd come home at eight o'clock in the morning, kids would get up, he'd go to sleep. And then he'd sleep, he'd get up and eat and then have a, an hour or so with him and then get ready to go back to work that night. It was weird. And even remembering it, it's like you think back and I thought, okay, I'm going to share something too. I was going into my senior year and it was probably the mood of the evening too, where I just thought realistically, I was planning on after graduation the following year, moving to LA, become an actor. That was the goal. But then realistically, you know, you start thinking about it and go, I don't know anybody. I don't know where I'm going to live. I don't know anybody that lives in LA. I don't know anybody in the entertainment industry. What the hell am I going to do? And if I come back to Pittsburgh, how am I going to act in Pittsburgh? So I thought and I shared with the guys that I had considered quitting school and trying to figure everything out and maybe just get a job. And the silence got even quieter when I brought that up. And I remember them just kind of staring holes through me. And the guy that had told the story about his kids and buying the pool for him had said, you've been given an opportunity to go to college and that's an opportunity that none of us ever had. And he said, you know, you're a big boy. You can make up your own mind, but I'm going to tell you one thing. If we see you back here next summer, we will beat the fucking living shit out of you. (laughs) And I said in the book, and it's true to this day, I said, you know, sometimes you just need to hear things in a way that they'll make sense to you. If I were to have that same conversation with, who knows, my parents back then, they may have said, hey, this is why you need to stay in school. You're, this is good for your education and your future. And a lot of times as a 20-year-old kid, you don't hear that. You're like, yeah, whatever, but I'm not going to get past it. But when you hear things that sort of put it in perspective for you, that made up my mind for me to stay in school that last year. And the truth is, I haven't seen those guys since that summer. But I think about them all the time. And I also think what path would my life have taken if I would have quit and I would have gone back and worked there with a broken nose after I got the crap beaten out of me. And that was basically, Trey, too, the idea behind the book was I didn't want to tell stories of like, oh, on this episode of Veronica's Closet, I did X, Y, and Z. I wanted to tell stories that I felt when they took place in my life, they seemed sort of meaningless and just kind of matter of fact stories. But then for some reason, as life goes on, those are the stories you remember. And I thought, you know, these are the stories that really define who people are. So I wanted to tell stories like that, that sort of defined who I am, as opposed to the stories maybe that people would expect to hear in a book like this. I totally understand why you did that. And on the one hand, I did make a mental note as I was reading this book and say, well, that's interesting. He didn't tell anything from Veronica's closet. Ultimately, it made sense to me that you were trying to not necessarily just go with the cookie cutter version of what your story is. And you certainly tell stories and talk about your experiences from your time at MTV and obviously uh, being in that Mimbo episode of Seinfeld, but you mix in something much deeper as well. And honestly, I was interested to learn about your first paying gig with MTV. It had nothing to do with MTV sports, and that took me by surprise. But what was that first paying gig with MTV? You know, I can throw in a little UT reference for you. Oh, please do. The reason I quit playing football at Carolina, one of the reasons, I should say, I hurt my back. So, uh, one, I hurt my back. Two, I was never really good enough to start there. And three, my sophomore year, that spring when I quit, Mac Brown came in and was our new coach. Our coach, Dick Crum, got fired. And then Mac came in. And Mac basically, wisely so, 
said to the team, basically, I'm keeping these five really good guys starting on offense, these five really good guys starting on D, and I'm bringing in junior college transfers and freshmen, and I'm building a program. The rest of you guys are more than welcome to stay on the team, but this is how I'm going to build the program. So that was also, I thought, the perfect time for me to exit. But the irony of all that was if you were to quit, you had to go and tell your position coach and then have a meeting with the head coach. So I had my meeting with Mac, and we're still friendly to this day, but I had told him, this isn't for me. I have other things that I want to do in my life, but I think you're the best thing that's ever happened to this program. And he took Carolina football to New Heights and then moved on to Texas and did amazing things there. And I got to be honest, I'm happy to have him back at Carolina right now. So he was a gracious dude back then, though, when he was just getting his start at North Carolina. He was the same figure that we all recognize today. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Very much so. But stopping playing football then kind of guided me the last two years of my Carolina experience to really start concentrating on things for my future there. And there was a Janet Jackson concert at Carolina at the Dean Dome, and MTV was coming down to do a live production from it. And I was in a professor's office arguing about a grade and ended up getting the job to be a runner for them just that one night at Carolina, make 40 bucks. And I met a guy there who was a producer from New York for MTV. His name was Robert LaForty and gave me his card after that night. And he said, if you're ever looking for work in New York, let me know. So when I moved to LA, I would call that guy on a daily basis after I graduated, just be like, Hey, I'm in LA. If you guys have anything going on in LA, LA and Ted Demi, who, was the producer of Yo! MTV Raps at the time, who went on to become a huge motion picture director in Hollywood, called me one day and said, hey, we're coming out to shoot an episode of Yo! and we need a PA. So I sort of became their go-to production assistant for Yo! MTV Raps and then other MTV productions out here. And then when they finally opened an office in Los Angeles, they had like 10 people in the whole office. I was hired as one of the two office PAs for it. So uh, that kind of was my in for MTV, and that's where then everything sort of grew from there for MTV Sports. I really enjoyed reading about your parents' response to you going back home to Pittsburgh and telling them about this dream to move to L.A. to try and make this happen, this dream that you had had since going back to fifth grade. But people are going to have to actually buy this book to read that part of things. And I promise you, it is well worth the cost of admission on its own. But regarding your time as an MTV production assistant in that West Coast office, you say that a Billy Idol concert in honor of the release of Oliver Stone's Jim Morrison biopic is one of your favorite moments as a PA. Why is that? Well, it was the Doors movie premiere. Oliver Stone shot it, and MTV again was filming live from the premiere. But then after the premiere, there was a big post party. All the stars from the film and all these other stars from Hollywood were going to be at the world famous Whiskey A Go Go on Sunset Boulevard in LA, in Hollywood, and Billy Idol was going to perform all these Doors songs. Billy Idol was huge at this time. So it was this amazing thing. And I was working as a production assistant at the time. And my job for that night was to basically take petty cash and go and prep Billy's dressing room with alcohol. And the quote was, I was told, you need to hook it up so it's great. The producer told me, we want Billy Idol to be Billy fucking Idol. So we want that rock star. He needs to feel like he's really taken care of. So I took the petty cash, and there's a pink dot liquors right down the street from the whiskey. And 
legit. I was like, you know, a 22 year old kid going, what do rock stars drink? I would say when I wanted to splurge, I would do a Jaeger bomb. And then I was drinking like 40s of either Miller, Genuine Draft, or give me a 40 of Colt. I was happy. That's all I could afford. <laughs> but Billy Idol's not going to drink 40s of malt liquor. What do I get him? So I thought, you know, I'm going to get a beer and some champagne and buying all this alcohol as this young kid. The guy behind the counter asked me what it was for. And like any wet behind the ear 22 year old B, I was like, hey, I'm buying alcohol for Billy Idol. He's performing down there tonight. And whether the guy believed me or not, he said, you know, I'd trade out a lot of that for some vodka if I were you. So I did. And then I even bought, I don't even know why, mixed nuts and just these things that I thought <laughs> he would think, wow, that's really posh. We've got mixed nuts. Look, there's cashews over here. <laughs> and I remember being really proud of myself. They're going like, you know what? This looks like I went the extra mile. I got the mixed nuts. He's going to be happy. We got vodka. We got champagne. We got beer. But then my job was basically stock his dressing room, had the dressing room look nice. And the other thing is too, the whiskey was an old building that had seen a lot of rock stars come and go from the sixties and seventies, eighties. And it's not like it's really nice on the inside. It's beaten up, but it's got a lot of history to it. So I tried to make the dressing room look as nice as possible, place the bottles and mixed nuts and all this stuff. And then I just, I had a tiny little fold out chair that I had to sit and wait for him with my walkie talkie. They're like, you just wait there. You sit in this little hallway because it's at the, you come up all these steps from the back of the whiskey. And then it's this tiny little hallway and the dressing room is at the back of the hallway. And I sat there on a fold-out chair with my walkie talkie. And it was also one of the things I didn't put in the book. It was like 900 degrees up there. They didn't have air conditioning in there. So I'm sitting there just completely sweating, waiting for Billy Idol to show up. And lo and behold, it was like when I ran with the Bulls in Pamplona, Spain, when his entourage showed up, man, they showed up and... It was rock stars and dudes smoking and cussing simultaneously and stripper-looking girls and then Billy in the mix of them all and then a guy that looked like he could have been an accountant was the last guy going through with him. And it was a blur with them all going through there and I'm trying to tell them who I am and what I'm there to do. And I think I even wrote the book. All I think I got out was like, a, what's up? I'm okay. And then the door closes and I'm back to waiting outside of the dressing room while you just hear them in there partying and things are going on and not to go too deep into the story from the book but as it got closer and closer to us going live they kept saying how's billy doing how's billy is he ready to go and my response over the walkie i'd just be like yeah everything's great up here i was trying to respond like i was hanging out with them when in the meantime i'm just sitting on my fold-out chair just waiting for them to come out and not knowing if I should knock on the door. Should I tell them like, yeah, you got a minute and a half before we go live, a minute before we go live. So lo and behold, I do my job, I think, <laughs> to the best I could have possibly done it. And Billy showed up, but he showed up late and going down on stage. And when he got on stage, he hit the stage. And it was one of the most amazing live performances I've ever seen. Because once everybody was gone upstairs, my job was over for the time being. I sat halfway down those steps and watched him from the side of the stage. And it was quite an amazing experience because then even the way he left, the show was over, place was going crazy. You'd think he's coming back for an encore. He's going to go have a drink or something off the side show. But he bolts, he's off the side of the stage. He's got a girl on his arm. He runs past me, takes the bottle of champagne that's in my hand, goes back down the back steps, out the back door. And somebody on the walk, he's like, Who's got eyes on Billy? Who's got eyes on Billy? I run downstairs, open up the back door. He's already on his Harley with the girl on the back drinking champagne. 
peeling tire out of the back of the whiskey going down Sunset Boulevard, and you hear the muffler. And I was just thinking, like, now that dude's a rock star. That's a rock star. So that was my favorite job as APA. I mean, I met a lot of different musicians and rock stars and rappers, but that, to me, really made an impression. That sort of brought all the rock star folklore legend of, uh, do rock stars really act like that? I don't know. I don't know. And seeing that, I'm like, yeah, that's a rock star right there. There you go. So you uh, eventually get your big break at MTV with MTV Sports, which you can actually state a, a pretty good claim that you helped come up with the idea for MTV Sports. But how did a yeah. talent exec respond the first time that you showed interest in hosting this new MTV Sports concept? And what ultimately led to you landing that gig? Well, she was somebody that I knew very well. She worked in our office. She was in charge of casting people for shows that we were shooting on the West Coast. And she came by, I, as you referenced, I had handed in a treatment for a show called MTV Sport This, which was very similar to the MTV Sports idea. So when she's like, hey, you're really into sports, who do you think would be good to host a show? You know, I gave my argument that that's my idea. I should at least be allowed to host it. And she's like, first off, nobody's going to believe the PA came up with this idea. And I'm not going to let you host it. And I think in her mind, too, it was like, I'm not going to bring in a kid that works in the office with me as one of my 15 finalists. I'm like, oh, look who I found. It was just somebody that worked three doors down from me. <laughs> so I think she was trying to save her job, too. But the day that they had their 15 finalists at the studio, I was there logging tapes and stuff. I was working at the studio doing my PA job, my due diligence, mm -hmm. PA. And one guy was late. They were all like professional volleyball players, surfers, skateboarders, guys like that. And one guy was late to show up. And a guy by the name of Paul Cockerell, who ran the West Coast office at the time, said, all right, Dan, I don't want any downtime. You think you can do this? Get out there and do it. And when I got out on stage, the casting lady had been asking everybody, all the other guys, for their auditions. They would get asked questions on camera. And when I got out there, since it was the PA coming out, she refused to ask me any questions on camera. And so I had some improv background from college and there was three cameramen there shooting directly into the lens of all three of those cameras and referring to the cameramen by name. And I was maybe out there two, two and a half minutes. And then I hear over the speaker in the stage, they're like, Dan, the guy's here, get off stage. So I leave. I didn't even really truthfully at the time think they recorded it. I wasn't sure. And even if they did, I thought they'd never add it to the reel. And long story short, that was a Monday, Tuesday morning. I get a call from Patrick Burns, the producer of MTV Sports in New York saying, hey, we really liked what you did with the audition. I thought it was somebody pranking me. I thought it was another guy I knew in New York pranking me. So I was like, this isn't even cool. Like, why would you even do this? <laughs> and he reassured me, no, this is Patrick Burns, and do you want to be the host of MTV Sports? And that Saturday, we shot the pilot episode of MTV Sports. So it was really just a whirlwind of five days where going from being a PA to hosting a show and shooting show and then after our third episode aired, we were the number one show worldwide for MTV in 72 countries. It was crazy. 
I don't want it to uh, diminish any of the stories that you tell about your time on MTV Sports, but again, people are going to need to buy Step Off to read some of those stories. Interviewing Bo Jackson, getting to drink yeah. with Harry Carey at a Cubs game. Are you freaking kidding me? That is a dream come <laughs> true and something that's that no amazing. longer even allowed. Being on the set of Braveheart, right. getting hit by a fake club by Mel Gibson way back when. Fast Not forward. even just getting hit by him, getting the crap beat out of me with it. Yeah, Mel enjoyed that a little bit too much. I did want to ask you about something that happened, I believe it was after MTV Sports was over with. You were working with the legendary George C. Scott on a TV show and even got to drink with him on a rare day off from the set in Vancouver. Did he enter the bar like Patton and ultimately what was that day like? That was a day that changed my life's path, taking a different course. I got that job and it was my second acting gig I ever got. And it was a CBS top drama with George C. Scott, Academy Award winner. And a lot of people were like, wait a second, you're going to put this MTV guy with George C. Scott? What is that all about? So we shot in Vancouver. So we really didn't know anybody other than the cast and the crew. George he was an old school guy and a serious dude and an amazing, obviously, actor. But also, when you got to know him, was a loving guy. And if he liked you, he liked you. You were in his inner circle. And so there was one day, yeah, because I, I was working simultaneously on MTV Sports at the time. So when you shoot a one-hour drama, it's long days. So I would do that five days a week and then usually fly from Vancouver early Saturday morning to go somewhere else in the world to shoot MTV Sports to be back by Sunday night to start working again. And I worked close to 40 straight days and I had finally had a day off and it was raining outside and I was at the bar in the hotel watching football and I was the only person in there talking to the bartender. I decided to call George to see if he wanted to come down and have a drink. And even as I called him when the phone was ringing, I was thinking to myself, wait, is this a good idea? What am I doing? Because I knew him from work and got to be close to work, but we had never hung out outside of work, even though our hotel rooms were right next door to each other. But George came down and it was a Sutton place in Vancouver. And if you sit at the corner of the bar, you could see directly across the lobby to the elevator doors and elevator doors open. And there stood alone, George C. Scott in a robe and slippers, but not Sutton place finest. He was in a robe and slippers that he looked like he probably got for Christmas 15 years prior. And he just walked across the lobby, probably about four o'clock in the afternoon with his hands in his pockets at the front of his robe and his head held high and walked into the bar. I remember the bartender go, wait, that's your buddy that you called this guy. So George came and we were the only two in there and we proceeded to hang out for quite a while and have some drinks and talk about not just work, but then we started talking about life. And what was amazing to me was George didn't know me from MTV, didn't know me from Burger King commercials, didn't know me truthfully from anything else. He knew me as an actor. And he used to call me Serpico because I had long hair. And he said, you look like Al Pacino, Serpico. (laughs) It was either Serpico or come here, darling. (laughs) And that was a moment for me to change because I was being accepted, not just by a legend within Hollywood, but by another actor who is quite accomplished but he accepted me for who I was and what I did and could do professionally. One of the things I didn't put in the book was that he had even asked me at one point on that day 
if I would want to work on stage with him. He's like, we should do a play. Let's, we should just do a play off Broadway in New York. Would you be willing to do that? So even to hear those words come in my direction from George C. Scott, let me know that deep down inside I was doing something right at that time. And just a tremendous guy. And I stayed in contact with him after we finished the show. And because I live in Malibu and he lived in Malibu, occasionally we'd go in and drop in on him just to say hi. But sad the way that his life came to an end, but just a very generous guy. Going to end this one, Dan, by asking about something that is a passion in your life. Because for much of your life, you looked forward to the day that you would finally become a father. And you have become a father three times over, I believe. Two sons and a daughter. How has it been to actually get to live out that dream as a dad? Wow. My oldest son is 19, my daughter 16, and now we have Enzo is one and a half. And it's something that I've always, more so than becoming an actor or anything else, I always wanted to be a dad. And to have great kids that, knock on wood, haven't given me any trouble, it's such a blessing. And it's the most amazing experience you could have as an adult is to be a parent. And it's funny, when Carolina was pregnant with, Enzo, everybody was looking at me because I was 50. And I'm like, what are you doing? And I said, the irony of it all was every woman that I would see would say, and I even wrote about this in the book, would say, what are you doing? You were almost done. 19 and 16, you were almost done. And I even said, that sounds like a prison sentence. Like, oh, you're almost done with your prison term. And every guy that was my age I would talk to would be like, I'm so jealous. I wish I could do that again, too. And you would think it would be the other way around, but it was weird to me. It was one of those, because a lot of guys I talked to said, you know, you learn the first time around and you know what to do the next time. And Trey, I'm very blessed. And one of the things that's really helped me, I've always tried to do it, but it's reminded me to live in the moment every day. Because a lot of people like to say, there's always tomorrow. That's not true. There's not always tomorrow. But what there is, there's always right now. And to live in the moment and to really enjoy it, the good and the not so good, and to just really appreciate life for how beautiful it is. So I've really been fortunate and very lucky, but I think I'm done. I think three is where we draw the line, but who knows? (laughs) Never say never. And uh, I think what you just said also plays into another one of your favorite ideologies of making sure to ask yourself, why not when you encounter a situation? He is Dan Cortez, an actor, a TV personality, and now a published author. Of course, you know him from MTV Sports, Seinfeld, Veronica's Closet, and so much more. The new book is Step Off, My Journey from Mimbo to Manhood. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Dan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book, man. Trey, you're the man. I appreciate taking the time and reading the book. Thanks so much.